Thanks for listening to the Career Planning Show. You can listen to a new episode every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform where podcasts are shared. If you'd like to ask me a question, you can submit it via email at alex at rascanu.com. I'm Alex Rashkanu, and I'm coming to you from the Staples Studio in Midtown, Toronto, Canada. You are joining a conversation about who you are, what work you were born to do, where you can do it, and how to get there. Today, we have the pleasure of discussing career planning with Sanford Borens, Professor Emeritus of Strategic Management at the University of Toronto, the best internationally ranked Canadian university. Professor Borens holds a BA from Harvard University, a Master of Public Policy from the Kennedy School at Harvard University, and a PhD in Economics from Harvard University. He recently retired from the University of Toronto after a 45-year academic career, but continues to be engaged in research, writing, and giving professional presentations. With his wife and co-author, Beth Hurst, he is currently writing a book on narrative and politics. Learn more about Professor Borens at sandfordborens.com. Professor, how did you come to realize that you would want to become a university professor one day? Well, um, put it this way. I wasn't uh, sure. When I was doing a master's in public policy, I sort of contemplated um, working in the public service, I contemplated politics, and I contemplated academics. Mm. Uh, I went on in my career um, to work on a PhD. You know, even at that point, I was not sure. Um, I started uh, a position at a university uh, before I finished my PhD, and then I decided that of the three, I liked university teaching the most. Um, I felt that working for the public service was rather constraining in the sense that uh, um, I, public servants are often, well, are, are not allowed to express their own opinions. They're simply mm. there to serve politicians. Mm. Um, and I found that much too intellectually constraining. And then on the other hand, I, um, I sort of had a, sort of a little taste of politics. I worked for one of the candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party in 1976, uh, Joe Clark, who indeed came, became the leader. And working on a leadership convention gave me a taste of politics. And I felt that that was in a way too hectic and, and too demanding. Um, and so then I sort of eliminated uh, po uh, politics in the public service and uh, chose academics. Um, I found that I liked teaching and that I li also liked doing research. So it was a career that, uh, that, that fit my um, personality. Hmm. And, and just uh, delving a little bit deeper into that uh, part of your story, would you say that uh, Joe Clark or someone else on the campaign had some sort of an impact um, that influenced your decision to specialize in the area of public management in terms of your, in terms of your 
academic research and, and teaching? Or were there other events um, or individuals that had a, an influence in you deciding to pursue that particular path? Yeah, well, I was always interested in the public sector. Hmm. Um, and, you know, sort of, um, you know, but that could have led me to political science. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I did my doctorate in economics, not, I didn't, I, I wasn't necessarily committed to becoming an economist, yes. but I liked sort of the rigor and the quantitative um, and, and the use of quantitative methodologies that, that, uh, that to characterize economics. And so I felt that economics was good preparation. Um, you know, I did, I, I did two studies fairly early on that I think uh, um, helped define my career, hmm. or define my intellectual interests. I did a doctoral dissertation about uh, transportation planning, in particular, the planning of airports. Hmm. And that was, uh, uh, that, that was a, a response to a government policy or, or a government decision to build a second airport for Toronto. Hmm. And the more I looked at that, the more I realized that that was a, you know, a, a bad decision, a bad policy in the sense that the government was um, adding capacity to the transportation system before the capacity at the existing airport um, was completely utilized. Yes. And, you know, as you know, it turned out that the federal government never built a second airport in Toronto. Um, Pearson is, you know, capable, you know, was capable of handling something like three or four times the level of traffic that the government thought it was capable of handling in the early 70s. Hmm. Um, so that that was, you know, that that study certainly influenced me in the direction of sort of uh, policy analysis and public policy. Hmm. Then there was a second um, study that I did, um, a little bit related to the first. It was about the conflict over bilingual air traffic control, and hmm. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm sure your listeners, you know, don't don't know about this or may not have heard about it. But in the mid 70s, there was a very fierce conflict about which languages were to be used in communication between air traffic controllers and pilots. And pilots and controllers in Quebec wanted to be able to speak French. Um, and they met with some opposition from their English speaking colleagues who said it was important that all pilots and all controllers be able to understand one another. Um, it turned out that technically, the English speaking pilots and controllers were wrong. Um, it became a very political issue because um, it was seen as an instance of um, sort of Francophone Quebecers demanding the right to use their own language in the province of Quebec. And you know, this was a point at which Quebec had a separatist government. Um, and you know, it became sort of a, a, an an important aspect of the um, whole issue of uh, sort of, of separatism, separatism in Quebec. Um, and I did a study of, of this particular conflict. And um, doing, again, doing this study 
um, <clears throat> influenced me to want to do more studies of sort of, uh, of public policy. Hmm. And so I, I moved away from sort of the more technical transportation economics that, um, that, that, that I sort of did in my thesis to more of a, a, a sort of a his, historical, um, histor historical approach to studying public policy. And you know, by historical, I don't mean ancient history. I mean, in a sense, you know, current history. Yes, yes. Thank you for sharing. And so, if we go a little bit deeper into that, even further. So, if we look at the fact that you've worked for over forty-five years um, in academic research, and you did specialize in public sector innovation and management narratives, um, what would you say um, have been some of the the key findings that um, you've been able to um, identify, that you've been able to leverage, um, and that were perhaps utilized in decision-making processes um, within the various levels of government. Okay, you know, it's put it this way: <clears throat> it's hard to know the extent to which your research is um, adopted by practitioners. It's easier to know the extent to which your research is used by other academics because you can, you know, there are um, there's uh, there are websites out there um, that uh, count uh, sort of cite you know academic citations like Google Scholar. Yeah, Google Scholar, for instance. So you can you can see your impact on other scholars pretty clearly through Google Scholars. Okay, I mean, that said, uh, in the area of public sector innovation, my research was based on applications to innovation awards. And the research was quantitative in the sense that I looked at large numbers of applications and was able to do statistical analysis. Uh, so I could um, <clears throat> see the things that characterized um, successful public sector innovations. And I had a number of um, findings that that were um, that were replicated. Both, I mean, I originally started with data from the U.S., but the the, uh, the findings uh, were um, also typified data from other countries such as Europe and Australia. Anyway, some of these findings involved um, the existence of local heroes. Um, you know, public many public sector innovations were initiated by frontline workers and middle managers. They, they didn't all come from politicians and senior public servants. Mm -hmm. So there were these local heroes out there who were coming up with ideas and finding ways to convince their su superiors to um, accept and adopt these ideas. Mm -hmm. And that was one important finding. A second important finding was that <clears throat> Public sector innovations um, very frequently, more often than not, involved interorganizational cooperation. Mm -hmm. So an innovation just doesn't happen within one organization, but it uh, usually tends to involve different organizations working together. Mm -hmm. And you, you can sort of think of uh, innovations as creative responses to difficult problems that aren't simply contained with 
within the responsibilities of one organization. They cross organizational boundaries yeah. and innovation is the response to these types of problems. A third important finding is that evaluation is important. Innovations that were evaluated and proved that they were delivering results were the ones most likely to uh, get attention from the media, to win public uh, sector innovation awards, and most importantly, to be replicated. So people in the public sector um, wanted to know that innovations worked before they, uh, they replicated them. So these are um, sort of three very important, very, very important findings from my work. Um, you know, in terms of impact on practitioners, uh, I would, I'd say this, that, I mean, I started studying public sector innovation in the 1990s. Yes. And um, there, there, were, there were people out there, you know, academics and practitioners who thought that I was crazy, that I was studying something that didn't exist, okay? <laughs> You know, sort of public sector innovation is an oxymoron. The public sector is by definition never innovative. In any event, um, you know, I and some others were studying public sector innovation. It was not a large field then. Hmm. However, within the last 10 or 20 years, um, there have been more academics public, studying public sector innovation and more practitioners interested in public sector innovation. Um, as an example of this, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development um, has established a, a sort of a, sec, a, a unit, a branch that deals with public sector innovation, and they've developed what they call an observatory of public mm -hmm. sector innovation. It's on the OECD website, mm -hmm. and you know what they've built a database of hundreds of public sector innovations all over the world. So there are a lot more academics and practitioners interested in public sector innovation now than was the case when I started 20 years ago. And so I feel, you know, apart from my Google Scholar count, um, which, which is considerable, um, you know, some of my articles on public sector innovation have been cited four and 500 times and that mm -hmm. you know, feels good. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is that my work and the work of a few others um, who started early on has had an influence in developing this field um, that is uh, this field that is of interest both to other academics and to practitioners. Hmm. And that's good. Thank you. Um, let's chat a little bit about management narratives. Management yeah. narratives is the area that you've been focusing on for the last number of years. Um, yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit about <clears throat> what have been some of your findings, some of the learnings that you've taken away from taking a look at uh, this particular topic? Okay, yeah, I guess I, I would, I would um, suggest two here. Um, one is that many people understand um, politics and history um, in terms of what they've seen in the movies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is sometimes bad because what they see in the movies is a poor representation or sometimes even a misrepresentation of history. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> many people's understanding of you know, sort of two figures I can think of. Churchill and Lincoln is based on what they've seen of Churchill and Lincoln in the movies. Mm. 
Um, and as I said, I mean, it's, it's nice that people remember Churchill and Lincoln because I think, um, you know, they were um, hugely important figures uh, historically, um, but, it's, but it's unfortunate that, um, for me, that uh, many people have a misunderstanding <coughs> of, of Churchill and Lincoln um, mm. based on the sorts of stories that uh, movies have uh, tried to tell. Yes, they've been dramatizing the characters, showcasing certain aspects of who they are, yeah. and coming up with other aspects who, you know, perhaps they they didn't really perform things that uh, were, you know, not yeah. giving their their character perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know the sort of the 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 the, the craziest of just as an example, the craziest of these is in a uh, a movie called Darkest Hour, mm. which was rather recent. Was a, yeah, I think it released in 2017. And indeed, uh, Gary Oldman, the actor who played Churchill, won the, won the uh, Academy Award for uh, Best Actor. Um, the movie had a, 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 a totally nonsensical scene about how Churchill, um, you know, um, on one occasion, uh, went uh, sort of went on the on the on the tube, and he was asking sort of everyday citizens about what his policy should be vis-a-vis um, -vis the, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis World War II and, and uh, or in particular, uh, whether Britain should, uh, should fight or whether it should try to make a peace agreement with, uh, with the Nazis. In any event, um, you know, this scene of government by focus group didn't happen. And, you know, numerous commentators pointed out that it was that it was crazy. It was a total misunderstanding of Churchill. Mm -hmm. So you know that's that's one example. They were um, probably just trying to relate to the audience <laughs> and put the audience in his shoes or something to that effect to to see you know how they would feel in that particular situation. But yeah, so much um, unfortunately, so much untruth sometimes occurs and influences yeah, people's point yeah. of view. Yeah, um, you know, I, I guess another thing I would I would say in the sort of narrative and, and politics. Is that um, it's for, certainly for people and well for everybody. It's important to have a compelling personal story. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you you are to a great extent you are the story you tell about yourself, mm -hmm. and it's important to have um, a story that is clear, that is relatable, um, and that. Uh, um, other other people can identify with and make sense of, yes. and I think that uh, you know having a a a, a clear relatable uh, personal story is a good thing in terms of uh, a cover letter, a job interview, mm -hmm. and a first date. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And speaking of um, of, of that, you know one. Um, Something that's part of my personal story is the way you've impacted uh, me um, in that out of all the professors I had at University of Toronto, you were the most engaging professor by far. And I so love the public management class that I took in my third academic year that um, I end up specializing public management during my undergrad and up taking it. Uh, you know, uh, serving as a research assistant and uh, end up working with a member of parliament right after my undergraduate degree. Um, 
went off into the corporate world for some time, but then just realized that it's not for me and uh, went back and pursued the master in public administration and uh, then worked with uh, with the provincial government. And I'm, I'm still um, to some extent in the public management um, realm based on the, the work that I'm doing currently. Um, so you've profoundly impacted uh, me personally, and I'm really thankful for that. I, I wonder if you might be able I'm to- I'm delighted share... to hear that. I, you know, uh... Yes. I really appreciate it. And one thing that really stood out to me was the way in which you engaged with the students, um, the way you set up the class environment, the way you um, even did an exercise where you had us uh, make uh, budgetary decisions as the sitting government and um, you know, having one person be the premier, another person be the minister of finance, and then you had other ministers representing the various departments and then pitching for funding uh, based on a pot of money. And then the minister of finance having to speak with the president of the treasury board to make, you know, budgetary allocations. And then they have to explain that to the ministers that that was a really fascinating exercise, very engaging. Would you mind speaking a little bit about um, your teaching methodology and how you arrived at such an engaging um, way of teaching students? Okay, well, um, you know, I guess I've um, all, I've all, I've preferred to teach um, sort of senior undergraduates and to have small classes. You know, the classes with senior undergraduates tend to be smaller. I've just felt that uh, um, lecturing isn't the right way to teach, um, to teach uh, people of that age, that they have ideas, they have experience, and I want them to share their ideas and their experience with their colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want it to simply to be me lecturing. You know, yes, parts of the course involve me lecturing, but I wanna create uh, opportunities for students to engage um, with, with one another. Um, and, you know, that's how I've sort of gravitated towards that teaching methodology. Mm. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's referred to as being a um, guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. Mm -hmm. So I've particularly preferred that. Uh, um, and then there's um, a, uh, <clears throat> there a Confucian um, uh, saying, I think, um, I, what is it? Uh, I, I, I hear and I, and I forget. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, you know, and, um, I, I hear and I forget, but I do when I remember. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I, I much, I much prefer sort of the latter form of, uh, of teaching that, that involves in engagement. That's right. Um, and, and the last portion of that phrase is I do and I understand. Right. So you, okay. you really got us to do, to actually be yeah. part of the story, which was great. Right. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you for re refreshing my memory. Uh, I, you know, I guess the, the other thing I, I would say is that um, I hope that the world can return to uh, sort of uh, uh, that the world can return to the pre-COVID days in the sense of people 
being able to engage with one another in person. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's hard to do this type of teaching um, when it's mediated through, through Zoom. Mm -hmm. you know, I know that Zoom has breakout rooms and all that, um, but there's a lot more that we gain and that we learn um, when we're sort of interacting with one another and we can see, you know, sort of uh, each other's entire uh, bodies as opposed to simply yeah. seeing faces in a screen. Yeah. Here, here. One final question. Let's imagine that we're talking right now with um, a student. They're perhaps pursuing an undergraduate, a master's or a PhD um, degree, and they're really uh, pursuing um, the career opportunity of becoming a professor. Um, you know, someone in their life inspired them to become a professor. Um, they've been um, they've been seeing some of their professors how engaging they are, and and some of the interesting academic work that they're doing, and they're they're on the pathway to become. Um, a university professor. We are in a rather difficult economic climate and um, it does seem as though universities are finding it um, harder to hire new professors. Um, and that poses a significant challenge to anyone who would want to become a professor. Um, there already aren't that many uh, postings that come up every year and now, um, from what I'm seeing, it appears that there will be even more um, job postings um, in the field. Are there any thoughts that you have on how someone who's thinking about such a, a career trajectory, especially if they don't just simply want to be a lecturer, they would want to be a full-time um, you know, researcher, um, like academic um, uh, to, to yeah. teach and also to, do, yeah. to, to conduct research on a full-time basis. Yeah. Do you have any career development thoughts on this? Well. I know. Um, I mean, this. I agree with you. I mean, this. This is a big problem. Um, when you know, when I was starting out in the '70s, academic jobs were plentiful, mm. and that is not the case now. Um, I guess my advice to someone would be: have a plan B. Mm. In other words, um, yes, you know, work. You know, work on a PhD. Mm. Uh, I think because that's, that's what you need to get an academic job. Yeah. And you know the discipline of doing a doctoral thesis, which is in effect writing a book, mm -hmm. um, is you know, from an intellectual point of view is valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and in a sense, the skills you gain from that will never be taken away from you. Yes. Um, but it's important to have a plan B, to think about other possible careers um, that you know that you could um, go to if um, an academic position at a university doesn't work out. And you know, I guess what I would say is that one thing that didn't exist um, in the '70s was sort of the technology sector in any way comparable to the technology sector now, mm -hmm. right? I mean, IBM was there, but you know, even Microsoft and Apple were just getting started in the 70s. And you know, the technology, the big technology firms have created thousands and millions of jobs, many of them at high level. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, 
firms like Apple and Google do hire PhDs. That's right. And so that's in a way, uh, you know, an alternative career path. That's right. And the public sector does as well. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, there, there are certainly fields that someone can pivot to yeah. um, if uh, an academic career does not uh, pan out on a full-time basis. Sure. And then, you know, uh, similarly, someone, you know, could you know, with a PhD could start in one of the other fields, but keep their eye open on the academic world. And if the right academic job becomes available, they could pivot to that. That's right. That's a really good thought to end on. Um, really appreciate having you on the career planning show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Career Planning Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and share it with a friend. For more episodes, you can find the Career Planning Show on demand wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find me on the main social media platforms by following at A-L-E-X-R-A-S-C-A-N-U.